0: Hello and welcome to Startup Dads. I'm Amrit Santhira Seyman, CEO of a high-growth startup, father to a young daughter. Join me as I speak to ultra-successful parent founders, venture capitalists and investors to take a look at the world through their eyes and uncover the lives, drives and strategies of parents in business. We're here to show you that you can grow a thriving business and happy family at the same time. This week's guest is Jeff Solomon, founder of Markup Hero. Jeff is a serial founder, investor and teacher, with a 9 figure exit under his belt, as well as more than his fair share of battle scars. He's also dad to twins and became a startup dad while his business was going through a thorny patch. Listen in to hear more about that story, plus, taking multiple paths to success, common traits in entrepreneurial kids and the power of focus. As always, it's great to hear from you all, so do leave me a comment or send a DM on Twitter at startupdadspod. Alternatively. Reach me on LinkedIn at Amrit Santa Ruseyman, and I promise to get back to you. All right, let's get into the episode. I'd love to hear just about how startup and dad life came
1: together.
2: How they merged, how it occurred. Yeah, so I was, I guess, already a startup guy in the middle of my first, I guess, successful startup. Uh, you know, I'd already had an initial job out of college that wasn't a startup, and then I fell in love with software and the internet and I started a company and it completely crashed and burned, and then I did some consulting, and then eventually we spun off this this company, Velocify, and it was during that time I was building that business, working, and I was still young. I was like, you know, in my 20s, so I was working real late. You know, we had a really small team, and we were just, you know how it is when you're deploying software, it's like two in the morning, you're QAing, you're... And the addition of children to that mix was definitely challenging. It happened at about year two of the business. We had just raised our series A, so it got in a way more demanding, but also a little bit of pressure was removed because I had some capital to hire people, which was nice. The dad thing came into to be, I definitely wanted to be a dad. It was definitely not an accident. In fact, it was, ultra deliberate in the sense that we were struggling to even have kids. And so, you know, we had to go through a lot of fertility doctors, and I'm sure some of your listeners have have gone through this. And that that is emotionally challenging in itself. So it took us a year, a little over a year to get pregnant. So that that added a lot of stress to the whole thing. You know, there was also cost to it as well. So there's a lot of emotions that that went during that time, but we were very fortunate to eventually get pregnant with twins. So I knew we were having twins pretty early on. I think I was less afraid of the twins than you might imagine one would be in this circumstance. You know, I was really excited about having a boy and a girl. I really didn't know what that was going to be like. I never had a brother or a sister. I was only child. So I didn't really have a sense of like, oh, how hard is it going to be to be a dad? I was just like this is cool. So it was a little bit of a shock when it came into existence, you know, but the company was in full swing. In fact, I think here's an interesting little nugget about how challenging the whole thing was. At the time, maybe month seven, we go on a baby moon to Hawaii. At that time, this was 2008. And our business, that company was very heavy in the financial services and mortgage space. And 2008 was like the worst. Mortgage companies just got destroyed. It was a whole the whole subprime thing. And so the company was struggling and we were running out of money because when you raise money, they push you to spend it. You know, oh, you gotta hire this HBS guy. You gotta hire these guys, you know? So we had burned through a lot of capital. The client base was churning out really fast and we were in a bad situation. I remember being in Hawaii, on my baby moon a couple months before having these twins on the phone with my VC and you know, battling it out. I was at one point, I remember saying like, forget it, I'm, I'm just gonna shut down the business, I'm out. Like, you know, that 5 million you put in, like, I'm just gonna move on, we're done. You know, we kind of reconciled and they put in a little more money and we, we were able to you know, salvage the business and ended up selling it for 130 million a while later, eight years later that was stress you know that was you that was a lot and then you know was, they they were born super healthy you know we made we made it work
1: it's amazing uh, you know i think it's one of those things that's really hard to explain for the better modern society has put much more emphasis on dads being active participants in their kids lives right and I, it's really interesting talking to a couple of our investors who are you know their kids are grown up they're like this wasn't the expectation i had and you know that's, that's fantastic. And one of the reasons I set up the show was actually to show how, you know, it can be done. But I think that y- your story there is a good example about the fact that, you know, lots of people expect when they have kids that kids can just be a, like a country mile ahead of every other priority. But when you have a startup it's way closer than, you know, lots of people would like to admit. So I suppose I'm interested in your thoughts on that and advice you have, you know, obviously you've got so much experience now on people on balancing startup and family life, because the reality is, you know, it's not a one horse race in quite the same way.
2: They're somewhat on par. You know, it is tough to say that your kids aren't just a massive priority over your startup. But if you're really in this game and you're you're a hardcore entrepreneur and, you know, you love what you do it's something that has to have a priority as well. So there were absolutely times when, you know, I I had to choose between putting in time with the kids and not, I will say timing wise, it probably worked out for the better because the early days with kids, when they're babies, the hard work is physical work. It's physically draining but it's not emotionally hard work and as they get older like i would say the work now at you know 8 9 10 11 12 is actually way harder because it's not so obvious it's not blocking and tackling you know it's like when they're a baby it's like did they get fed did they get napped are they rested are they played with you know it's pretty it's time no question it's time which is a valuable resource but it's not it's not that challenging it's not that complex but as they get older and become real humans and you have to teach them how to survive in the world and like, you know, learn how to create boundaries or learn how to navigate bullies and like have the sex talk and all this stuff that happens when they're, you know, a little bit older like they are now, bro, that is hard.
1: Yeah, that's both a really valuable and as a dad of a 20 month old, bloody terrified because <laughs> your description of blocking and tackling, my co founders like, yeah, you just spend most of your life stopping your child from like, trying to kill herself don't you like that's your main job right now is to make sure she doesn't like run into a wall totally
2: yeah it's like putting up fences
1: exactly and like you say and i think you know one of the things that realizations that i've had is that this notion of presence that everyone talks to like i screw that up on a regular basis like i'm not present a lot of the time because I'm at that stage where my child is very young and, you know, most of the things I need to do are physical, but also I'm at the stage where my business is similar to you, like just post series eight, like just exploding and unlocked a new level of complexity that I didn't plan for. But, you know, one of those things is that I, I don't feel, and maybe I'm justifying to myself, that actually she's missing out a huge amount if I'm actually, <laughs> I mean, she'd listen to more business audiobooks as a 20 month old than um, any child probably should, Um, but I suppose, how do you now, you know, make time to be present, to be a little bit more chilled? One of my favorite stories about how do founders just become more chilled? Well, actually the best way they do that is by having loads of shit go wrong. And eventually they just run out of ways to be stressed. And and I don't know what your thoughts are on that story and kind of your feelings on how that's interacting with your family life and how you've made it work.
2: Yeah. Uh, I think it is at some point, whether you're, successful or not, you do, or at least I did get to a point where it's just like, I can only do so much and the anxiety and stress around it doesn't actually help. It's really a letting go thing and just setting myself up for it to to work out right. And that's, you know, doing more prep work, not scrambling at the last minute and having experience, right? It's like, if I have to create a pitch deck or some sort of presentation, like I've done a million of them, so on the one hand, I know what needs to go in it, it doesn't take as much thought, and this is just time just having been doing this stuff for almost 30 years, I've just got that experience, and I would say here's a little pro tip for younger founders is I've created a lot of templates and a lot of assets. If you go on my computer, compared to a lot of my friends, like I have a template and an asset for everything, whether it's in Notion and it's a document explaining how I do stuff. Like I do a lot of content marketing now for my current uh, little startup and I have a written process, like step by step process about how I do everything, you know, and it's it's great because it's easy to use at a future date, but it's also easy to train and hire someone because I can be like, here's what I do. Just follow this document. And it's like ultra ridiculously well organized and written PowerPoint templates and Google Docs. And I just have all this stuff that I've collected over the years and I reuse it. And that saves me a ton of time. And I think that partly that was just due to my anal retentive, obsessive compulsive nature. But it's something that someone can deliberately do if they're not that way. at heart, I think they can set themselves up for a long-term relaxation by, you know, creating some processes that can be reused. And I've done a good job at that, you know, and that's helped a lot with that challenge.
1: Yeah, for sure. This notion of systemizing things and playbooking things is so important. Avoiding have to relearn something that you already know how to do is a simple but effective hack. We often talk about HX is like don't do something for 2021, Amrit. You need to do it for 2022 or 2023, Amrit, because he's really going to thank you. Yeah, I think you know one of the things you learn earlier as a founder is where you have to learn to scale yourself very effectively.
2: But you can only take yourself so far, so you have to learn to pass off the torch to other people, and you know having your own uh, stuff processed uh, documented helps with that, you know, and a lot of founders, I think, struggle with that. I work with a lot of founders, whether it's, you know, in my advisory calls, uh, on clarity, uh, my entrepreneurship course that I teach, you know, I do a ton of, of just work with other founders. And, um, you know, that's one of the biggest things, challenges they have is they're like really good at doing something and they can't let go of it because they, they think, and to the, some extent it's true. If they hand it up to someone else, it's not going to get done as well. And sometimes, you know, getting something done is better than getting it done perfect. And that's a, that's a tough thing for a lot of us to accept, but it is, it is important.
1: Could you maybe share some of the like important lessons you learned early in your startup journey that set you up for success?
2: Well, the big learning from that first crash and burn startup, part of it was, you know, ego was a big part of why that failed, and I would say that's tough to not go through like in an early stage you have some success in something and then your ego gets big and then it gets knocked down. So that was a learning But I don't know that someone could just take that and be like, oh, I'm I'm not going to have an ego like it doesn't that doesn't really work. But here's a learning that I got that was like fundamental for my the rest of my career, which is an obvious one, but also one that a lot of founders sort of overlook, which is, you know, that business didn't solve a problem like we didn't know what the problem or need was that we were actually addressing. And so we built some really cool tech and really cool software and people thought it was really neat. But it didn't actually meet any customer need for any customer segment. And so it was just like people were like, Man, I don't really care. I'm certainly not going to pay for this. And so, you know, the whole concept of customer development and talking to customers or talking to people that might be customers and understanding what their true pains are, you know, which is a really... Difficult and deliberate process of extracting information and turning that into, you know, problems and solutions. Um, you know, this art of customer development has become like a framework for my entire career, both in terms of my own startups and trying to get that right. Which I don't always get it right. Still, like I've still failed at that, but I've always attempted to do that. And it's a big part of what I teach, you know, my class, this high school entrepreneurship class that I've been teaching, which is super cool. Cause I'm getting to work again with kids. They're a little older than my kids. They're juniors and seniors. But the whole class is wrapped around this idea of like, I know you want to build an app, but like, before you do that, let's go out and actually talk to some people and see if how you're thinking about this is actually viable don't just build because it sounds cool or don't just build because you think people are going to like it. Like, really get out there and and try to validate as best you can whether it's meeting the need or a need.
1: Yeah, and actually, you know, it doesn't really matter how great your tech is, how great your solution is. If it's not a solution to a problem that lots of people have, it's of no consequence, you have helped me segue beautifully onto your entrepreneurship course because I wanted to ask you about that. So you've got kids who are just transitioning into that age you're a startup guy through and through i'm really fascinated into your insights i suppose when seeing kids who are interested in entrepreneurship and i suppose if you've got any insights into what connects them and you know because people often talk about uh, in the world whether there is a kind of founder entrepreneurship gene because it takes a certain type of person right i think it, i think there's no doubt about that I'm interested in your thoughts on that when you see that, and then maybe we can go on to what your thoughts on how you frame entrepreneurship to your kids.
2: Yeah, so I'll go back to my relationship with my dad. My dad was not an entrepreneur. He was a very successful businessman. He was a Wharton guy, you know, worked for big companies, but he was not an entrepreneur. He was definitely not a startup guy. He was the exact opposite. He liked big companies and he liked you know, sort of managing thousands of people, not really doing any tactical or tangible work. But being amazing at like putting the right people on the spot on the bus you know really good at that and so he definitely did not teach me about entrepreneurship in fact he he to some extent was so afraid and risk averse that he kind of made me not see that this was a path and, you know, no knock at him for not doing that. It just just wasn't his game. But what happened was, you know, I didn't do very well in school because school is largely, and hence the reason why I'm teaching this class in the first place is largely designed to optimize for a certain kind of student that is very scholastically oriented that can follow the process to get an A. And I could not follow the process to get an A. And it wasn't until college that I realized that, there were actually many, many processes and many ways to get an A and they only taught one way in high school. And so as, I, as my career sort of unfolded, I realized that there was this concept of entrepreneurship, both in terms of how you run a business and how you grow your career, but also how you operate your entire life, that there's many paths from A to B. And so with my kids, Uh, Of course, I want them to like get excited and, you know, do the lemonade stand and have the car wash truck and all these things that I did when I was growing up. For the most part, they they weren't really that interested in it. My son didn't seem like super pumped on it. You know, it's like, hey, you want to wash the car and make five bucks? He wasn't super into it. My daughter at first wasn't that into it. And so I really just focused on letting them know about this idea that there are many paths and don't worry if you're being told or you're observing at school or in your life that you know oh there's one path there's one way to do it and you have to be good at this or you're dumb which is the message that I got like I left high school thinking like I can't do this one way and therefore I'm dumb I try to encourage them to find their own path to whatever they want to do That said, my daughter has of recent months, maybe the last six to eight months, has become more entrepreneurial. She found an interesting passion that she's excited about, you know, doing and and making money. She's been into these uh, doing people's nails and doing like custom painted nails and the press on nail things with you know she's got a ton of like supplies in her room and anyway so she's been practicing and watching YouTube and learning how to do it and she spent a long time just sort of figuring it out and I was like oh cool she's got an interest she's got a passion like that's great I I support that In recent months, she's been, you know, she's like, oh, I want to, like, do it for people and they can pay me and I need this table so I can do this thing. And she's been getting friends of hers and friends of mine to, like, come over and get their nails done here and there. And for a 12-year-old to get, like, 30 or 40 bucks for a nail paint is pretty good money. Now her thing is she wants to make a flyer, which she doesn't want help on. I was like, look, I've got all these templates for flyers. Check it out. And she's like, no, no, I know how to do it. I already know how to use Photoshop. I'm like, okay. So she wants to make a flyer, take it around to the neighbors and have them, you know, come over to our guest house. And she's going to set up a shop up here and like do nails. And I was like, that's awesome. Like, I'm super supportive. Like, how can I help? A bunch of my friends have startups or companies and two in particular are very female driven women run orgs. And I pitch them, hey, can and my daughter, come in for, you know, three or four hours one day after school and do five or six girls' nails? And both of them are like, that's amazing. Like, I'll pay for it as a perk for my, you know, employees to do it. So as soon as COVID, you know, when people are back to the the offices, she's going to start doing some of that. She's into it. And another thing that she seems keen on, I don't know if you know that, I'm sure you do, that whole uh, research thing that was done in the 70s where they gave kids, some candy and then said, you know, you can wait like an hour, get another piece of candy, or you can just have this one now. And like that, that whole study. So this idea of immediate gratification, my son and I are much more in the immediate gratification camp. And my daughter is more in the like, yeah, if I wait, I get more like I'm down. So I have this whole saving concept that I do with her. Well, both of them have this option, but she's taken advantage of it where Every dollar that she earns, whether it's for car wash or doing nails or whatever, if she decides not to spend it and save it till she's 18, I'll match it. So her matching uh, fund, the savings fund, is growing rapidly because most of the money she gets now, she puts there and, and then she's like, oh, there's 30 bucks. Put it in the other 30 and all of a sudden it's 60. And uh, so she's she's into that, uh, which is cool. She'll have some money to, to do something when she graduates, you know. That's kind of how I work with my my kids to try and encourage them to find their entrepreneurial spirit, but not necessarily uh, force them to look at it as a business. Because it's not. It's like it's how you operate as a human being. And you can apply that to business or you can apply it to anything else.
1: Yeah, your point about seeing multiple parts is so important and actually it's really interesting to hear the way you frame that because actually if I think about me like you know I come from an Asian family education was really important and actually I think I probably saw the flip side of that where I was very good at school I was very good at that one path and actually the problem is that one path you know school is a highly controlled environment and experiment and the real world does not operate with the same cause and effect mechanisms than an exam where you get a book and you see the input you have to put and the single output. And I think to some extent, it's actually extremely important to realize that the real world is not going to reward you in the same way, whether or not you want to be an entrepreneur, actually.
2: Yep. Agreed. In fact, in my class, this this high school class, the very first day, half the students, if not more of the students come in and they really only want to know one thing. They're like, what do I need to do to get an A? Like, what is the instructions for an A? And I say, this class, there's no instructions. Like, your A could be completely different than her A. You know, it's totally unique. And you got to find your way to an A. And they're like, no, 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 I, that's not, I can't deal with that. That's, that doesn't work for me. I need, to, I need to get my A. I'm like, well, that's, this class is different.
1: If the sole purpose of a class like that is to show a group of kids that there's not just one way to pass, right? And that's not the only way they should optimize their lives, the decisions they make. That's just a super valuable, super valuable thing for people to become aware of earlier in their lives i think jeff i want to ask you one of my favorite questions now which is what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you'd love to pass on to your kids
2: well i guess i had this this concept for a while but i just started reading a book called essentialism by greg mccallan and um The concepts in the book are something that I already lived by, you know, which was like there's the essential few or essential one things to do and everything else is secondary and do less but better. And he has one quote or one philosophy in there, which I think is a great phrasing of something I already sort of was doing, which is I can do anything, but I can't do everything. You know, and for a long time, I lived by the opposite of that or a version of that, which is I can do anything and I'll do everything, you know, which is just not possible. And it's just overwhelming. And to be honest, the results are, are weaker, you know, because like you try to do five things and you do at best five things well. But if you try to do one thing, you have an opportunity to do one thing like incredibly well, like just great. And that's been something that I've learned just through practice, you know, that the less I focus on, the better it is, and the less stress and anxiety and frustration and more time that I have. And so really doing the whole less is more, you know, is a big thing that I've learned. And as I get older, and more comfortable with letting things go and not doing everything and saying no to things, it's been a great philosophy for my health, for my mental fortitude, and certainly for the results that I produce in my career.
1: Yeah, the power of focus is something that's incredibly powerful thing. I think it's also something that lots of people who are naturally restless, impatient people who fit the entrepreneurship mold find hard to do and i'm definitely one of those i think i'm at the stage of my career maybe that you were many years ago now where i'm really learning that i have to do that otherwise actually and it comes back to what you were saying at the very beginning that if you don't you're often worse off you're worse off by trying to do more things you're more anxious you get less done several reasons why that's a stressful thing to do and that the benefits of focusing into zeroing in on a small number of high leverage things is very valuable. So uh, that's a lesson that not just your kids uh, will really, really benefit from.
2: Yeah. it's It's a tough one though. Like even today I know it and I practice it, but I'm still so good at multitasking that I'm just, I default to that. So it's something I have to be very deliberate and say like, okay, wait, 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 wait. Of the 10 things I'm trying to do right now, which is the most important thing? You know, if I did just that, you know, which would that be? And just deliberately prioritize that. And that means that seven of all other, other things are not going to get done or at least not going to get done today. And it does work, but it's difficult. It's still difficult.
1: It is. Do you have um, systems you put in place with yourself to help you do that? Or is it more of a way of actually catching yourself and just kind of inhibiting your instincts or a combination of both?
2: Well, more often than not, it is a catching myself. I think over time I've gotten better because my defaults will just kick in and I'll, I'll, a lot of times either do the thing that's not the most important because it's the most fun, or I think it's gonna have the best result, or a lot of times it's because I think what other people want me to do gets a priority, which isn't yeah. necessarily the priority. You know, To your point about what's my process, I ask myself, like, what's my motivation for doing this? Or what's my motivation for prioritizing this high? And if it's because someone else wants it, then I check that, you know, it's like, okay, like, why am I prioritizing that? Well, they're paying me. Okay, that's a factor, right? Right? Or, oh, I don't want to let them down. Mm, that's another factor. But is that critical? You know, have I let them down in the past? No. So I kind of go through that sort of checklist and, and check that motivation to try and figure out what the most important thing is. And those priorities change, you know, when you're running your first startup, and it's killing it out, you get your series A, like you're in that boat, like the priorities are going to be a little bit different, you know, and as you get older and your kids grow up and they start, you know, going on dates and you're like, oh my God, how do I, how do I navigate this? You know, that has to take a little bit more of a priority. You know, um, I had the, I went on a walk a couple of weeks ago. I'd been wanting to have the like sex and masturbation talk with my son You know, I didn't want him to like get into seventh grade and, you know, see some kids snickering over their phone and looking at porn or whatever they're doing and him not know what's going on. Like him be like, oh, what's what is this? What are they doing? What are they talking about? So we walked around the block and I gave him the whole speech and I didn't really have a speech that someone that I had read about or I just sort of like started from the beginning and just was like you know, trying to check where his head was at. And it was a great talk. You know, it, went, it was awkward for me. Not really awkward for him, which was cool. He wasn't like, oh, dad, no, no, don't tell oh, No, no, no. But he just listened and was like, okay, oh, okay. I didn't know that. Like, okay, okay. But it felt really good as a dad to go through that process. And I had been dreading it for like six months. You know, like, how am I going to have this conversation with my son? And um, I felt accomplished after doing that. And I felt, you know, like I really did him a service. And I try to really, you know, have conversations like that with my kids regularly and acknowledge them for things that I see. Like, here's another one. So, you know, with kids these days, there's a great, uh, I saw like a documentary or something. And the concept was that sitting is the new smoking. You know, for kids these days and like sitting is just crushing our backs and our bodies. And, um, and so, you know, he plays games and he's he's sitting at his seat for sometimes 12, 13, 14 hours, you know, so. I started to notice the curve and I'm like, you know, hey, you've got to protect your back. You know, it's like that has has to last you. I'm like, I can live with you playing a lot of games and we'll we'll try and get you interested in other stuff. But I can live with that, but I can't accept you not taking care of your body. And that really resonated with him where I was like not dismissing the gameplay. I wasn't like, hey, you can't play games, you know. I wasn't dismissing that, but I was saying there's something really important that you have to protect as a priority. And, you know, started practicing sitting up straight and getting him like some ergonomic things to help him with this and like really getting him to take ownership of his own body in that way and he's making progress like it's not he still forgets and I see him slouching or slumping but I try to you know point out the positive moments where I'm like wow for that last hour I was watching you and like I kept seeing you straighten your back you know and um that was great I'm you know, I'm proud of that. Good work. Like, that's really important. It's a habit that if you learn now, it'll carry over and it'll really last. And really trying to get him empowered over his taking care of himself in that way and not not making him feel bad for whatever activity he's doing that's causing it,
1: you know? Yeah, it's really valuable. I think it's a lesson that is absolutely <laughs> applicable to startup and dad life. And I've learned this You know, speaking honestly, and I'm very open, it's been a real (laughs) learning to be a dad is something that actually I found way harder than I thought I would. And I don't know whether it's because I'm not natural at it or whether HX is taking up more of my life or you know, or for any other reasons. But one thing I've realized, even with my daughter at 20 months is, you know, you can't butt up against when she's doing something that I don't want her to do or whatever it is, but butting up against her, you know, that's not the strategy that it just doesn't work even at 20 months, right? Whereas if I can kind of come around the side and just, you know, change her direction g- gently with some thoughtfulness, you know, and it ties into your kind of thoughtfulness, focus, like thinking about how you're going to go about something. All of these things are kind of very connected, right? It's about actually the sense of uh, letting something happen versus trying to force it to happen.
2: Agreed, yeah. If you try to force it, it's just the more you resist, the more it persists, you know? So I think that that approach of, them taking ownership and it becoming their own thing. It's kind of like the inception concept, you know, it's like you plant the seed in such a way that they take ownership of it and want to make it happen. That's the gold, you know, if you can do that and they're like, no, this is really important to me, then they do it, you know?
1: And that I think is an absolutely cracking way for us to wrap up the show. But before we go, we'd love to hit you with startup shout outs where we shine a light on an organization or founder or anyone in the startup ecosystem that we admire.
2: Startup. Shoutouts. I have this this student that I taught maybe five years ago. uh, His kid Jonah, he's got a company called Green Disco. And it's cool because it's a social impact company that actually makes money, which is something we talk about in my class where you can actually do good and make money. It doesn't have to be a nonprofit. And he basically is going around to events. He loves the, the EDM events and that's sort of his passion. And so he has built a system where he empowers these events to reduce their carbon footprint. You know, By largely planting trees right now, they sell like a wristband as an add-on to the ticket. And for that wristband, you get a bunch of perks. Kids pay or attendees pay 20 bucks extra. They plant 10 trees. And they make a little profit and then the event gives them like priority lines at the bathrooms, like some free Red Bull, like, you know, different kinds of swag and stuff like that. And he's got a handful of events. He raised some money and like, he's actually building this thing. And so it's pretty inspiring to see some success. And he calls me like every couple of weeks. He's like, okay, what do I do about this? how do I handle that? Like, what should I do here? You know? So, um, yeah, young founder. I'm just, I'm impressed and pleased to see that happen. It feels great that's super cool uh,
1: super cool for him and so yeah something you can be very proud of as well right well Jeff look that's been an absolutely awesome show thank you so much for sharing your insights how can we find out a little bit more about you and what you're doing at the moment
2: probably the the best way is through my my personal website you know which you can you can contact me through you can set up advisory calls you can certainly get access to my course I think I have some coupons on there you can see my current startup markup hero which is a Little SaaS, very low cost SaaS app for productivity, for annotating and screenshots and editing PDFs and that kind of stuff. So that site is uh, back.me, B A K dot M E. And you'll see a really corny picture of me on the front of that website holding a lollipop. And yeah, everything you need to know about me is there and you can access and get a hold of me. And it's a good center point for my stuff.
1: That's perfect. We'll get all that into the show notes and make sure we get uh, all of that out for our listeners to read, listen, and learn about. Great, brilliant. Well, look, Jeff, thank you so much. That's been an absolutely awesome show. Lots of tips. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
0: Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So, if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at Startup Dad's Pod.